Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 348. Should be a very redeeming, healthy, joyous month. The month of Geula, Rishchidosh Nissen. This program is dedicated by Nathaniel Plotkin in honor of his family and his wife's family. So indeed, Rosh and let's begin with that. Someone asked a question. Does the Torah allude anywhere that Mashiach will come during the month of Nisan? Because that's when the original Geula from Egypt happened. So we can see the Mazel of Nisan is redemption. Is that accurate? Absolutely. The Medrash says, Benisan Nigalu, Benisan Asidin Le'igoyal. That Nisan the Jews were redeemed and the Nisan the Jews will be redeemed. Meaning in the future redemption, which is not such a distant future, it's an imminent future, as the Rebbe told us, that we've done all the work, just have to finish the last tipping point and to reveal the Gula Hamitis Vashlema. So this is the month. This is the auspicious and appropriate month for it because the redemption from Mitzrayim, Yitzhiz Mitzrayim, was not just a one-time redemption. It opened the door of the very concept of Geula. As the Maral of Prague writes, the Rebbe cites it in a number of places, that it wasn't just a physical redemption from the slavery and the bondage that the Jews had suffered for several hundred years, but it was also infused them with being free people. Because you can be free physically, but not be free psychologically and emotionally and spiritually. And Yitzhiz Mitzrayim infused these people with a sense of freedom, of transcendence, that never again can they ever be enslaved in their own minds, their own hearts and souls. So it's the beginning of all redemption, and thus, as the, as the name Yitzhiz Mitzrayim implies, leaving constraints, limitations of all sorts. So Suresh Lekol Hagali, as the Medrash says, is the beginning, is the root of all the displacements of exiles, but it's also the root of all Geulahs. But especially, we know, the Pasuk says in Micha, the Prophet says, Just as in the days when you left Egypt, I will show you wonders in the future. So there's a direct comparison, and actually in the Seder, Pesach Seder, that we will be celebrating shortly, close to less than two weeks, we actually talk about and connect the two Geulahs. As a matter of fact, some explain that the first half of the Haggadah relates to the Geulah of Mitzrayim, the redemption from Egypt, and the second half, the redemption, the future redemption. And there's all kinds of allusions to it throughout the Seder, throughout the prayers. The last day of Pesach, of course, the Haftarah is dedicated to Mashiach's coming. We also have Mesud of Mashiach on the last day of Pesach. Bottom line is Pesach and Geula, Hamitiz Vashlema, the future final and permanent redemption, are intertwined in many, many ways. But especially conceptually, when you think about it, it's about freeing yourself from any form of concealment and inhibition and any form of constraint and limitation. So indeed, and today is Rosh Chodesh Nissen. Rosh Chodesh Nissen is the head, Rosh, of the month of Nissen. On this day, we have the new moon, which Moshe was shown by God. This is, he showed him, he pointed and showed him the moon in the sky. There's a discussion, what did he see exactly since it's a new moon? But regardless, he showed him, this is the renewal that you will also be experiencing. 
that the Jewish people compared to the moon and count by the moon will experience in two weeks from Rishchidosh Nisan is Tezvav Nisan is the 15th of Nisan and um, which is exactly two weeks actually from, from today and that will be the redemption that you will march out from Egypt so Rishchidosh Nisan every Rishchidosh Nisan we are reminded two weeks before the Chag before the holiday we also intensify our studies of Pesach and redemption, both in the technical side and the halacha side of the laws that are associated with this holiday, but also with the spiritual side of it and its personal significance. So we'll be talking about some themes, but especially next week we'll have a special Pesach edition. So that's Rishchidosh Nissen and uh, the connection to Geula. This week is also Pashas Vayikra, and um, tomorrow will be Beznis, the second day of Nisan. So in that order, let us go through, we'll talk about Beznis, and since tonight, tomorrow is Beznis, and it's the 101st yard site of the Estalkus, marking of the Estalkus, the passing of the Rebbe Rashab, Beznis and Tofresh Pei, we're now in Tofshin Pei Aleph, so 101 years later. And it's also the beginning of the Nesiyah, the leadership of the sixth generation, fifth generation, V'zorach HaShemesh, or Ba HaShemesh, the sun sets, the sun rises, the sixth generation, the Fridic Rebbe, who assumed leadership immediately in uh, that, on this day, 101 years ago. And he would lead, of course, and then his Estalkus was 30 years later, Tovshin Yud, 30 years from Tovshin Pei, that is, 30 years later, and that's when the Rebbe, the seventh generation, emerged until this day, marching us into the Gula Amitis Vashlem. So, we've talked about Beis Nissen in previous programs. I'll give you some cross-referencing shortly. Um, but there were a few questions that came in, so I might as well address them. But before I address them, let me just briefly, what is the significance of the Istalkus of a Tzaddik, of a Rebbe? So the Alter Rebbe already clared, clarified this in Nagaris HaKedosh, Simech of Zion, Simech of Ches, where he talks about what Nistalkus is, and that Nistalkus, as the Rebbe brings very often, is from the words, Nistalkus doesn't just mean expiring and leaving, but it also means that a new revelation that is above existence emerges. And as the Alter Rebbe explains there, that at Tzaddik, after the Nistalkus, in many ways, is his energy is unbridled and unfettered because it doesn't have any of the filters that it has when it's a soul inside of a body. And then, continues that on the day of Aistalkus, all the Avedan, all the Teireh, and all the work, and all the achievements of the person, in this case, the Rebbe Rashab, elevates above, accumulates, and in turn draws down and affects salvations, redemptions, in the depths of the earth, meaning even in the most material part of our lives. So a day like this has special power. A special power specifically around the tzaddik that, and the Rebbe that it connects with. The Rebbe Rashab. So in general, the Rebbe Rashab, of course, every Rebbe has so many achievements that are impossible to enumerate. But generally, the two big things that we talk about, we hear about, is the Rebbe Rashab being the Rambam of Chassidus. He collected and gathered Chassidus, and also, of course, explained it in ways that were unprecedented turned it into a full-bodied system. Though the Alter Rebbe had established it as such, but in a way that we can relate to, 
and especially in the Hemshechim of Samachvav and Ayim Beis, as the Rebbe says, the two fundamental series of discourses, one 61 discourses long, the other one 144 discourses long, and with an additional uh, another uh, hundreds of pages um, of, a, of a section that was not called the third part, that was not delivered, but rather only written, that in these two tremendous uh, series, what called Hamshechim, which is a series of discourses, the Rebbe Rashab laid it out in a way that you can really build a very comprehensive picture, very direct way. But of course, all the Maimorim of the Rebbe Rashab. So one person asked me this question, can you give us a synopsis of your favorite Maimor of the Rebbe Rashab? First of all, it's very difficult to choose a favorite Maimor. They're all favorites by me. Uh, the Rebbe Rashab is, is a certain chitu chaksav, which means a clarity in writing, that when you read it, it just flows, and it's just, it's, it's just you feel submerged in the waters of, the comforting waters of chassidus, just get a, lifted up to another place. And any mimer of the Rebbe Rashab has that. I do not in any way, God forbid, suggest that other mimerim of the other Rebbeim don't have that. It's just the Rebbe Rashab, it's sometimes easier, mitzadas tachten, our perspective to experience it as such. But obviously it's all inter, interwoven, all of the Maimari Chassidus, all the Rabbeim, and it's all part of the bigger picture as established by the Alter Rebbe in the, in the, with the Yisiazdus, with the founding of Chassidus Chabad. Um, but again, since I don't want to say favorite, I will point out, however, some of the Maimari that I've uh, been immersed in, especially lately. I give a daily class now for nine years in Ayin Bez, which you can easily join. There's a Zoom link and a YouTube link that's live every morning, New York time, Eastern Standard Time, or Eastern Daylight Time, 9.30 a.m. for one hour. Go to chsidasupply.com and you can find all the details how to join. But teaching it and learning it in depth, we learn it in depth, slowly, slowly. That's why it's taken over nine years so far. The Rebbe Rashab delivered in several years, but we learn it in depth, every line, it, what you discover, what I've discovered, is, a, is awesome. An awesome, uh, first of all, the mind of the Rebbe Rashab, the ability to, take to, to, to weave together, to integrate and synthesize so many different concepts in chassidus, where usually you find them in different maimarim. You find Toyo and Tikkun, Eir and Keli, Keser, Sfirus, Yichud, Matantera, the Ovis, I mean, I can go on and on. And the Rebbe Rashab brings it all together in this beautiful, eloquent system, which takes time to, to capture, like a beautiful painting. But as it develops, it turns into a, a tremendous um, insight, a tremendous blueprint, more than insight, blueprint for life. And with one word, I would capture it all, the word is interface. The interface between the divine and existence. That's the running theme, the thread that goes through the entire Hemshech. But the way he, he explains it, the way he brings together the different Maimorim. So whatever you've learned in Chassidus, when you learn Ayin Beis, you suddenly see, oh wow, you see its connection with everything else. And of course the depth, the analysis of each specific detail of the interface with all one thing in mind, to connect you, your person, your individuality, and who you are in every possible way, with godliness, with alukus, and in a step-by-step -step manner, as he says, it's like climbing step-by-steps. You cannot jump the steps. From time to time, you get a surge of energy, 
But to really internalize it requires a step-by-step process. It's just tremendous to learn. It's very hard to capture without actually learning it. It's like trying to describe swimming without actually swimming in waters. But this is the Hemshech Haim Beis, which follows, of course, a few years earlier, the Hemshech Samach Vov I mentioned, where there too, but not quite, the Rebbe calls Haim Beis Neflois, a filolegabed the Neflois of Samach Vov, wonders, even compared to the wonders of Samach Vov. So we can repeat that from the Rebbe. But then the case of Samach Vov, the way I usually phrase it, and it's when you learn them both in that order, you realize that Samach Vov is very much about what he's called Ben, Nas, ben Shanasa Eved. That the role, the goal there is to reach the deepest levels. How? Through going out of our own egos and our own structures. So what's a Ben has a close relationship with his parent. So there's a relationship between the Jewish people and God that's defined by closeness and by the fact that they have access. Eved is the concept of Kabbalah sale. It's not about how close we are. It's about how much I'm dedicated to you. How much I'm ready to go and make my, my that commitment that is beyond. So a ben shenas evet is not just a ben, but also someone that has the aveda. And the second part is yegiya. So samachvav is very much about kabbalah sel and yegiya. That that's the way. If you a human being and its undefined parameters wants to reach the infinite divine and beyond the infinite, the key is two things: is kabbalah sel, accepting, and being committed to something greater than yourself, and yegiya, effort, the effort in studying Torah, exertion. Because both those things break, break us out of our patterns and our comfort zones and our structures. In that context, Samarvov goes in that direction. I am based, which is, of course, a continuation. I would say, this is my own idea. I've not seen it elsewhere. So it's a Yeshlema Bedera Chavshet that I am based is that after you've reached those highest levels, now it's about bringing it, integrating it within ourselves integrating it in every part of our existence and every part of our beings. Because the goal is not just to go out of yourself, not just afshata, meaning, uh, meaning um, suspending ourselves in bitl to go upward, but also to bring that bitl back into our, and integrate it into our lives. And that's ayin base, which makes a lot of sense, because that's why the order is in that way. In Samach Vav, the main focus is in the two opinions in Kabbalah at the Chassidus sites, whether the energies, whether Eudas have seer or not, do they have any shape? Or is their shape determined only by the kalim, by the containers in which, they, in which they enter, in which they manifest? So there's two opinions. In Samach Vav, he leans more toward the opinion of Eudas Pshutim, because it's about the Eudas being more shapeless, going away from shape into the divine expanse of shapelessness. In Ayin Beis, he clearly says a number of times, that the main focus here is on the shita that the eris amitsiyarim, that the energies have shape, subtle shape. They still need the containers to be manifest, but that emphasizes the element of bringing the divine shapelessness into the world of shape and structure. So that's a short uh, synopsis of some of the ideas that um, I've been involved in lately. So um, I hope that satisfies the question. Being that it's Bayesian. Being that business and coming up, can you tell the story of when the Rebbe Rashab went to an art museum and then taught some lessons in Aved Hashem based on the paintings he saw? More than just tell the story, I'll also refer you where the story is. 
If you want to find it, it's in actually a Sefer Mamorim called Tovshin Yur Aleph. Not to be confused with the Rebbe's Mamorim of Tovshin Yur Aleph. The Rebbe, of course, began his Nasius leadership in 1950. Formally began the first Mamorim of Lagani Tovshin Yur Aleph. But there's also a Sefer Mamorim Tovshin Yur Aleph from the Friedike Rebbe, because the Rebbe continued printing pamphlets, Kuntresim, every week or every several or, or in different periods throughout the year. And then they gathered them together in a Sefer Mamorim Tovshin Yur Aleph which has Maimorim from previous years. There's the famous Hemshech Tzadik Dalet there, but every Kuntres had in it a discourse, a Maimir, and often, very often, almost all of them, Minhagim, customs, and the Rebbe would also add a letter or a Shima from the, from the Friedrich Rebbe. And here it's a letter actually of Gimel Tamos Tofresh Tzadik Hey, Atvotsk. And he's writing to his son-in-law, his third son-in-law, Rabbi Nachim Mendel HaKoyen, this was the Rebbe, the Rebbe, I'm sorry, um, the Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe's third son-in-law, who unfortunately with his Rebbe Tzashena were killed in the Holocaust. And um, his name is Rabbi Nach Mendel HaKoyen Harenstein. So he writes a letter to him and he begins, Hatsiyur Echad HaChushim Anayilam B'Yeser. Tsiyur, art, is one of the most sublime and highest levels of senses and goes into discussing it at length in this letter. Throughout this letter, and I'm specifically citing now page 100 and, I'm sorry, 100 and, one hundred and twenty-eight. So the Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe tells about three different types of uh, art that the, Friedrich, that the Rebbe Rashab explained in a Fabrengen which I'll let you read if you like to want, want to go into it. But then but then on page 129 it continues that the Frebra Shabs told the following that when he traveled outside of Russia to Europe, he went to a museum and he saw three paintings from the artist Raphael, described the paintings in detail and many specifics about it. I'm not going to go to the whole detail, I'll just say three, what the three paintings were. The first one, he says, was you see a. a, a, a uh, a big area of land where you see a battle being fought. And the image is so real that captures every detail, the faces of the soldiers as they were battling, as we know, that it evokes all types of emotions. And he says, Tatmun this picture, when you look at it, it really it affects a person to cause them to tremble, fear, because it's so real. Describes it in real detail. Then he goes on to the second picture, where he talks about a field, a field of grain, and you see a bird on one of the stalks. Describes even a story about how a farmer, when he saw that, he saw the picture can't be perfect because if a bird's on a stalk, the stalk should be bent 
And he just discusses that in detail. And then the third painting is about a Roman court of law where you see the prosecutor and the defense and the judge and the jury or whatever they had then in their courts. You see the whole process of a court trial. And that too, of course, captures the reality of it. The Rebbe Rashab writes at the end, when I stood at this picture, I could not move. I was unable to move for one hour. And then I sat down until the museum closed. And I went three times to see this picture because it had such an impact on me. Then at the end he says that then these paintings gave me different lessons in Aveda because I heard from the Baal Shem Tov that everything a person sees or hears has to be a lesson. It does not spell what the, what the lessons are and the letter of the Fritik Rebbe ends right there. At which means he only gave part of the letter to be copied and be published and publicized. So that's where it is. You can look it up in connection to Bez Nissen. But it is an interesting uh, piece of history because you don't very often find the Rabbeim interacting with something from the secular world. And here it is from the secular artist Raphael and these three different types of paintings. Okay. Now, of course, there's so much more to speak about Beis Nissen, but because of time limits and especially because I've spoken about in the past, let me cross-reference you. If you go to episodes... 61, 206, 256, and 301. I've discussed Beis Nissen, different heiros and directives. And um, you can find all that at, at uh, chassidahsupply.com where you can, also, you can also submit in an anonymous form your questions as well as seeing the previous episodes, the archives, and as well as the different uh, essays and creative submissions in our six years of our contest that we have held so far. And more resources on Ayim Beis, Asam and other Maimorim that would definitely help in the methodology and the study and the application of Chassidus to our lives. So finally, the third thing is Pasha Vayikra. Since it's Pasha Vayikra, let's talk about that a bit. So, Pasha Yikra is, of course, the beginning of the third book of Chumash, the Sefer, ha- Sefer HaKarbonis, is sometimes called, Vayikra. And it's primarily the story of halachas that were told during the day when after the Shchedesh Nisan, which is, of course, today, was the temple, the sanctuary, the Mishkan was established, as we learned at the end of last week's Pasha, so now begin the laws. What do we do in this Mishkan? So the Yikra begins, Adam Kiyakriv, the mitzvahs of Karbonis, the offerings that were brought in the Mishkan. Tzav will continue. It will also talk about the dedication of the temple by the Kaihanim, by Moshe and by Aaron and the Kaihanim, the priests. And it will continue with the halachas through, all the way through the Sefer, mostly the halachas said that. There are obviously, here and there we have an episode like the story of Nadav and Aviyu, but it's also connected to the events that happened around Rosh Chodesh Nissen. Just for the record, this period in time, Rosh Chodesh Nissen, when all these laws are said, will carry on through Parsha Bamid, but all the way to Parsha Bahaleischa. So as the whole Sefer Vayikra is all these laws, then Bamidbar and Nosei, 
And in the middle of Baal the Teda continues. Nosei finished, concludes the dedication of the temple with the heads of the tribes. Baal with Aaron's lighting the Meneda. And then in the middle of Baal and then it says when the Aaron, remember when the cloud would rise, we learn, that was the sign, the time is to travel. So in the middle of Baal it says, Vayala Onan, the cloud rose, and the people began to travel. So the rest of the story, so basically, the leaving Egypt in the Pasha Shmois, in Pasha Boy, traveling the Kriyas Yamsuf, in Pasha B'Shalach, Matan Teir, in Pasha Yisrael, and then the laws that followed that in Mishpatim, and then Trum is the building of the Mishkan, all the way through Vayakob Kudei, the end of Chumash Shmois. The rest is the laws that were said in connection to that, that go all the way to Baal and Baal the journey continues where Pekudei ended. When the cloud descended and the Mishkan was established and all the laws, then the, the cloud rises and Baal the journey continues through the 40 years in the wilderness and it will end in Pasha Masay, the end of Bamidbar, where they arrive at the eastern bank, the east bank of the river Jordan, before, preparing to go into Eretz Yisrael. The Sefer Dvarim is Moshe Rabbeinu repeating all of this as they stand near the river Jordan, the last 37 days of his life, the last 37 days of that period from Zion Adar to, I'm, I'm sorry, from Rishchei Shvat to Zion Adar. From the beginning of Shvat to Zion Adar. This is the chronology structure. It's good to have, because good to know, because it helps put things into context. So we're now in the beginning of Ayikra. So it talks about Karbonus. Again, about Pasha Yikra, we've also spoken about quite extensively in previous years. So I'm going to take a few topics that were not discussed, that were based on questions that have come in in regard to um, Vayikra. Question number one. In Pasha Vayikra, it discusses different offerings and sacrifices done at the Beis Amigdash. Well, the Mishkan, and then later from that, we learn about the Beis Amigdash. Beis Amigdash, of course, refers to the permanent temple as established and built in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount. But the Mishkan includes them all. Vasili Migdash, Veshachanti Pesecham, refers to all the different Mishkan, starting from the Mishkan in the Midbar, Mishkan Shiloh, the other, the other temporary sanctuaries wherever they were built, until the final Beis Amigdash Hadrishan, Sheni, built in Yerushalayim and the Temple Mount, and when Mitzvah Hashem, God willing, shortly will be the building of the third temple in the same area, same Temple Mount, the coming of the Gu'ula. Okay, so it discusses different offerings and sacrifices. I think one of the categories is a thank you offering. Yes, a carbon Teido. Actually discussed more in Pasha Tzav that one brings after witnessing a miracle. That when one experiences a miracle in their lives, they brought an offering. It was called a teda, a thank you, a thanksgiving offering. How can someone give a thank you offering today during the temporary absence of the Beis HaMikdash? Okay, practical question. And we know gratitude is something that's very much part of, of Judaism, of teda. So the question is, how do you do that today? Well, the same question could be asked with all the karbonas. So we have a concept called the tefillahs came to midim tiknum. The Gemara says that the prayers that we say were established in place of the offerings, which is why they're actually, that's why it's called mincha, carbon mincha was one of the offerings. So shachas and mincha refer to the two tmidim, the two offerings that were given daily, the morning and the evening. Mairiv connects more to the end of the day when they cleaned up the mishkan, through Masadeshan and so on. So the prayers actually are in place. So we say, 
Purim Svasenu, that our lips complete and compensate for, in a way, for the Purim, for the bulls that were offered in the Beis Amigdash. So that's in general. So the prayers, that's why we say, Aveda refers to service, could be the service in the offerings in the Beis Amigdash. Aveda is also Aveda Satfila. Just for the record, when they, said the, when they gave the Kabbonis, it wasn't just offerings. They also said things. There was also kavonis and intentions. So there's, so the place of a korban teda, look in the davening every day, every morning. How do we begin the morning? As soon as you wake up. Teda, thank you. Hoidu, the beginning of davening shachras after b'chus ha-shachar. Hoidu. Just a few of the many references of hoidah. So even though we don't have the physical offering, we definitely have the concept, and, we, and, we're, and we're obligated to do so. And it's, of course, one of the most beautiful mitzvahs of saying gratitude. In essence, in truth, is all birchas hanenin, all the blessings we make on things we enjoy, food, is also a form of saying thank you. It has also other dimensions to it, but it's also a simple gratitude, saying thank you for something that was given to you as a gift and not taking for granted our blessings and our miracles. So that's in a general sense. In a more specific sense, we have birchas hanisim. We do have the idea of making a bracha, where we, we go up when they say, when we bench goimel, or other ways where we thank when we were in a situation, either a dangerous situation that we got out of, or in general, a, a miracle in some way that happened in our lives. So there are some certain cases, there are brachas that we say. So the idea of heidah is filled, is constant throughout our work, even today, in how we acknowledge and how we uh, hallel, hallel v'heidah. Hallel is praise and thanksgiving. For the miracles, we say it on Rishchidosh, we say it on, uh, on the Yom Tevim, the different times in the year when we say hallel. So that answers that question. Being that we're on that topic, there's another question related to it, which we're going to address in the Chassidus question at the end of this program about what will be when the future Will there be offerings in the Karbonis when Mashiach comes? But I'll reserve that for the end of the program. Okay. Next question in regard to this. How do we reconcile where it says Hashem was angry and told the angels to stop singing and dancing when the Mitzrayim drowned in the sea? Because it's not the cause, the cause of enjoyment when His creations are being destroyed. So how do we reconcile that with the Pasha, where we read about Hashem enjoying the scent of the burnt offerings. Yeah, Reach Necheach. Where essentially his living animal creatures, creations are being destroyed. So first, the Gemara says that when the angels began singing praise, when the Egyptians were drowning in the Red Sea, after they're pursuing the Jews, so the Parsi parted, the Jews went through, the Egyptians drowned. So that God said, you're singing, my creations are are dying, are, are being killed, and you're singing praise. Even though the Egyptians deserved it, look what they kept pursuing the Jews after all those years of oppression, they wouldn't let them go. But we don't sing praise when pain is happening. We cry that people can stoop to such a low level of depravity and immorality in, in treating other people in this way. So the questioner is asking, so then why does God have joy and pleasure for the burnt offerings, the karbanas? So really the question is a broader one. Why are there offerings in the first place? Why not just say prayers? Why kill an animal? 
slaughter and kill an animal, bring it on the Mizbeach. So I've discussed this topic in episode 294 and other episodes, but briefly, in the context of this particular question, really goes down to a bigger question of why the world was created in the first place. When we say, Adam Kiyakin Bekem Karben Lashem, it's the first statement in this, in this uh, book of Ayikra. So we know the Alter Rebbe stated, why, say, Adam why not Adam Mikem Kiyakriv? When a person among you will offer, Adam Kiyakriv Mikem means like the Yakriv is going on the person, because that's exactly the purpose. The purpose of existence is for us material human beings of flesh and blood who have our egos and we have our own self-absorbed interests to offer ourselves and connect carbon from the word kiruv, closeness, to connect to the divine. That's what a carbon is. So, of course, that intensifies the question, why should an animal suffer? So there we go to the purpose of creation in the first place. God created the world, not we human beings. Mineral, vegetable, plants, vegetable, animal, and the human being. And as the Sefer Ikrim says, the goal is that they all should be united and integrated. The animal is integrated into the plant and vegetable kingdom. The plant and vegetable kingdom is internalized, integrated into the animal kingdom. And the animal kingdom is integrated into the human. They're not just here to exist. They're here to connect. So when you say, for example, that the animals that eat plants and shrubs, do we cry over that? No. Because those plants and shrubs are not dying. They're dying in their form but that they're now being absorbed into a higher form. And the same is true when an animal is, 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 is slaughtered and consumed, shecht, which is really the word slaughter is not an appropriate word, is a form of elevating. When you elevate it, and a human being eats it with the right intention in mind, that's the key. If it's just consuming and indulging, then even a mineral cannot be touched because they're all everything is sacred. Even rubbing a leaf, the Friedrich Rebbe was rebuked by his father, the Rebbe Rashab, the Balei Lula of Eiz Nisan. For even rubbing a leaf, what right do you have to rub a leaf? Because it's called baltashkes, waste. However, if you're using it and the energy of it for something purposeful, for something meaningful, for something that serves God's intentions, that's the purpose. Everything God created, He created to honor Him. So the purpose of bringing offerings was not killing. It was elevating. I know it looks like, one second, but you're shedding blood. But the fact of the matter is, if we knew the spirit of the animal, maybe the animal is thanking you for elevating me in that fashion. And I know this is not so politically correct, but at the end of the day, what, what justifies us to consume anything? only if it's used for the right purposes. So the same question can be asked about vegetable and plants and mineral. You're not allowed to touch another life. Why are you consuming another life? Because it doesn't bleed, it doesn't cry. But it has its own trajectory, it has its own life force. So this already touches on more topics. So the answer is the, the, the sweetness, or the reich necheach, enjoying the scent, obviously not the physical scent, it was the idea of enjoying his bonding with, the kiruv, the connection, that comes from these offerings. And the Ramban says clearly that when you offer a creature, an animal, you have to think to yourself that this was you. You're supposed to have been offered and God in his chesed, his kindness, allowed you to transfer it, not, to, not your animal soul, to the actual animal. 
But you have to be imagining that you are being offered in that fashion. And that's why I use the word offerings better than the word sacrifices. A karbun, kiruv, an offering. Come closer. Okay, next question. What are your thoughts on, the med- on this medrash? And if a soul transgresses and hears the voice of warning, so he's talking about the pasuk that says, if one is a witness, in other words, whether you, when someone sees a certain, is a witness to an event, whether he sees or otherwise knows, if he does not testify, he shall bear his iniquity. This is Vayikra Hey Aleph, 5.1. Basically, it says that if a person witnessed something and they're silent, they will bear, they will be punished. And some say punished with the same punishment of what they witnessed. The Medr says, you are my witnesses, Atam Edai. And I am God. This is in Ishaya, Mem Gimel Yud, 43.10. If you will not proclaim me as God unto the heathen nations of the world, I shall exact penalty from you. And where's the message? Vayikra Rabba 6.5, this person writing. Thank you. So basically the Medish is deriving from the verse that it's not just talking about witnesses of events on earth, but witnesses in the broader sense, in the cosmic sense, that you, God says, you're my witnesses, the Jewish people. And if you don't bear, proclaim me as God, in other words, bear witness, and proclaim me as God, then to the nations of the world, I will exact penalty. So of course the question is, what kind of strong statement is that? Well, let's go back to the theme I just addressed. Why are we here? The Gemara at the end of Kedushan speaks about that everything in the world was created to serve a higher species, human being, not serve in a subservient way, but be elevated by it, by the human, because we elevate the entire world and make it a divine home. Then it continues, And I were created to serve my God. My nest. Some, and sometimes the expression is, in, in a different version, a different girsah, I was not created for anything but to serve. So when you think of that way, if you're here in this world, and you are a witness to the events, the divine events, and a witness can be both a witness standing at Mount Sinai and seeing miracles throughout history, seeing the very survival of the Jewish people, and you don't bear testimony, you don't bear witness, you're not fulfilling the purpose of your life. In a broader set, bear witness, you're aware of the divine, you're aware of godliness, you're aware of the purpose, something that was passed on generation after generation from starting from Avram Avinu, from Abraham, and you're not doing that, that is a, more than a disgrace, it's a crime. A crime that you're not proclaiming the divine and the divine purpose in existence for all nations. So even though it's strong words, but the Torah, whenever it talks about penalty, remember, punishment is not crime and pun- reward and punishment in the technical sense. You behave, you get a candy, you misbehave, you get a slap. But rather, it's cause and effect. What's the cause and effect? That when you do fulfill your purpose, your machine works better. It's like saying a machine. You, you, when you work with it the right way, according to the operator's manual, the machine will work better, will reward you and, will, and be rewarded. When the machine is misused or abused, what do you think will happen? It breaks down. So the penalty is a cause and effect. It's an effect. If you're not living up to your potential and what you should be doing, it's going to have consequences. That's essentially the meaning of the Medrash. 
And one more question regarding the Pasha. What was the tent of meeting? The oil moyed. Do we have a similar place today where we can sit down and hang out with Hashem <laughs> and drink a beer and talk about what to do to help solve some problems in the world? Okay, I appreciate the tongue-in-cheek here. I've never heard anybody sitting down with God and drinking a beer, but I get the sentiment. A type of informal, loose conversation. And the answer is absolutely yes. Just like the tefillah's prayers are in place of the offerings, everything in the Mishkan, in the Migdash, in the Besamidash has something that parallels that we were given. For example, the very Mishkadash. We know that Yechazkel asked Hashem and God told him, Migdash Ma'at, Ve'elecham Migdash Ma'at. What does that mean? Building the sanctuaries, building our synagogues and our Bote Knesias and Bote Midrashas, our synagogues and our houses of prayer and our houses of study, that is a Migdashmat, a sanctuary and microcosm. The same thing is all the behavior, all the things that were done in the temple and sanctuary, we have some type of form that we can express it today as well. As a matter of fact, there are Sforim, entire books beginning with Teirah Se'ela from the Ramah, that explain the significance and the spiritual counterpart of each aspect of the Mishkan. So in general, the Shalot talks about it, the Bechayi, there's a lot of places that Rebbe brings it in his Shimas, in his manuscripts. In general, the Mishkan had three sections. Kedush Kedashim, the Holy of Holies, where the Oren was. The Kedush was the next section, where you had the three main vessels, the three vessels, the Menoida, the Shulchan, and the Mizbeach, in the center, which was the altar. And then you had the oil moed, the outer, the outer courtyard, the tent of meeting. Oil moed meaning moed, oil is a tent, and meeting is where we, we, we encounter each other, where we meet. And there you had one, one vessel, the mezbeach hachitzen. That was the mezbeach of the karbonas that we spoke about, the offerings. The mezbeach in this kodesh was the mezbeach hakteris, which was, we didn't bring offerings, only incense which refers to a much more a holier type of service, not refining the, the, the animal soul, not refining the material, which is the purpose of the oil moed, which serves like an interface. The Kodesh Kedoshim is the Holy of Holies, the Yom Kippur, only out one day a year, the Kayin Gadol, the high priest, one day, the Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur. That's like the Yechidosh HaBenefesh. That's the deepest part of the soul. Today, through learning Torah, which is like the Anu, the central nervous system. Kodesh is, the, so that would be like Moichim, Chabad, or Chochmah, Moichim. Midas is the second section, so you have, just like the Mishkan is divided into three, the human body, Moich, Lev, Kovit, there's the mind, the brain, there's the Lev, the, the torso, the Lev is the chest and all the organs there, and then there are the legs, Kovit, Moich, Lev, Kovit, Kovit is like the liver, but it also refers to the lower part. So basically you have these three sections corresponding. The head is the Kedush Kedoshim. The body has the right, left, and center. The heart, the center. The right, left is the Meneira, the, the, the Shulchan and the Meneira and the, and the Mizbeach HaKteris, the heart. And then El Maid is the part of us that extends, that's the largest part, that's out the outest board part that we walk on, our feet, that extend to the world around us, not so much internal organs like the heart and the liver and the and the lungs, definitely not the mind, and that's oil mayid. And oil mayid's role is to bring the holiness, 
of the Holy of Holies and the Holy into Nihi, Chabad Chagas Nihi and Malchus, that bring it to the world of Biyah. So if you think of it in the world of Atzilus, the Chabad would be Kedush Kedoshim of Chabad of Atzilus, Zah or the Midas would be, or I'd say better Chagas would be Kedush, and he and Malchus would be El Maid, which draws the holiness into the next dimension, which is the material world. And that's why the offerings were brought in that section. That's also the meeting place. What is a meeting place? A tent of meeting. It's a, um, a place where two entities meet. And they heard it from Oyel Moed. Even though the voice came out of the Holy of Holies, from the top of the urn, but the voice was heard through the Oyel Moed. It traveled through the Oyel Moed. So it's the interface between the place where godliness and existence converge. So it's a tent of meeting. Well, that's with Moshe and the Ebeshter, but that then extends to, Na'adati is from the word Moed, meeting, an intimate meeting, but El Moed is the place where the holiness of the temple extended and connected with the people and with the world around in order to help refine it to make the whole world a divine home. Okay. So now we covered that. What else do we have? So more about these episodes, about, about the Rishchidosh Nisan and Vayikra is episode 60, 156, 205, 252, and 301. Some cross-referencing. So here are some questions that continue to come in from previous weeks. So let me address that and see how much we can cover here. The next question is this. Why did God not abide by the rabbinic ruling after Chavzayin Oder. I remember after Chavzayin Oder. Chavzayin Oder, of course, was last week. We spoke about it the day 29 years ago when the Rebbe suffered a stroke. She says, I remember after that day, Chavzayin Oder, a psak din signed by 100 respected rabbonim, was read publicly in 770, proclaiming the Rebbe should have a complete recovery from his illness of the stroke. But sadly, the Rebbe got Gimel Tamos instead. So what went wrong? Doesn't Hashem have to abide by a legitimate and lawful ruling by the Rabbanim? Yes, indeed. And I will, do not have an answer to this question. Same problem I have is with all the prayers the Jews had during the Holocaust. Why did not God not respond? And the many other prayers that we delivered with heartfelt in all times of crisis and challenges. And still, God did not seem to have responded, maybe the better way of putting it. We don't have answers to such questions. Either God responded or will respond in his own way or there are mysteries we don't fully understand. We still continue and forge ahead and do what we have to do. Of course, we would have preferred Chav that didn't come, Gimel Tamas didn't come, but it did. And uh, we prayed and we have no regrets over our prayers. That's the way it works. There's one God and he decides. But we know that God listens to prayers and the prayers will be answered one way or another if they haven't been already. And it could be they're answered in our own health and the lives and the blessings we have and the work we need to do to fulfill the mission. So as the Rebbe points out time and again, we don't ask why, why things don't work out the way we want. We ask what are we going to do about it. I've repeated it many times. And if you think about it psychologically, it's a methodology. It's a healthy methodology. Because if you're going to agonize over the why, you can spend a lot of time and not getting anywhere, and actually just creating negative energy inside yourself. Because it's not going to be motivating. And anything that's not motivating is debilitating, is demoralizing. 
So the attitude of believing in you and saying, figure out what to do, what are you going to do about it, is empowering. It also tells you that there is something that can be done. It's a vote of confidence because you can do something. And the Rebbe said, two thousand can't. Do everything you can. In a tragic way, it fulfilled the, the prophecy was fulfilled in a prophetically tragic way that, they, that the Rebbe is not physically here to do it. And we must do it. And that's the approach we must take. I don't see any other way. And that's the way that we were taught. It's the way of Chassidus, the way of Torah. By you so move forward. Don't get stuck in questions and philosophies. Do we have the right to ask? Ask. But don't let it in any way impact you or slow you down. Okay. In that same vein, if other is supposed to be a month of joy, how is it possible on a cosmic level that our beloved Rebbe could suffer a stroke on the 27th of other, and two years later on the exact same day suffer another more serious stroke? Is this, is this day a bad omen for our community? It's also not a coincidence that both Beis Amikdashes were destroyed on the exact same day, a few hundred years apart, meaning Tishabov. What can we do? What can we do as a community to offset the negative energy of the 27th of other and convert it back to a day of joy and to honor the Rebbe and give him nachas while doing so? Well, the answer I actually spoke about last week relatively at length, what we can do, the Rebbe said, in the Sicha of Shabbos Parsha Boy Gimel, and which includes also this talk of Gimel Shvat, that when the Rebbe suffers a stroke, has a stroke, we should be his mouthpiece. What we can do, we need to be the mouthpiece, the arms, the legs, that we have to be the channels of the Rebbe's directives, teachings, requests, in every possible way. And more, now more than ever. That's our mission. I do not have an answer why things happen, as I said before. We don't have an answer for that. What are we going to do about it? Well, other is an interesting month, because on one hand, yes, it began with negative and then it's a month that was transformed. So we too need to transform it. And just as in the days of Purim, they transformed it through prayer and through their activities and, and deeper commitment than Messias Nefesh, including Mordechai and the entire story that we read. Same too now. So why this month? Why did God not choose another month? Who knows? You want me to speculate? Maybe because, to emphasize the point, that this is a month that can also be transformed and should be transformed. So don't see the negative as a negative. See it as a stepping stone to something that will be transformed and become and an even deeper level, similar to the month of Av. Now Av, we know, we say, is a month that is of negative activity, of events. You mentioned the Beis Amigdash being destroyed. But then comes the 15th of Av and it's transformed. As a matter of fact, the Gemara says, Kishem, Kishenichnas of, Mamayatim Besimcha, Kach Kishenichnas Odim, Marbim Besimcha. What is the equation? Just as we diminish in joy in the month of Av, that's why we, 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 we increase in joy in other. There seems to be a contradiction. So the Rebbe explains no. It's telling you that they're connected. The decrease is in order for there to be the increase. And ultimately, we will all tra- we'll transform of, but even when there is a negative in other, it's also its purpose is transformation. And how do we do that? By our increasing in our activities. We cannot let, let ourselves to become resigned 
or in any way weakened by the questions, by the challenges. It has to be a catalyst and a springboard that motivates us to grow even further. Okay. The next question, which is already a pre-Pesach question, moving along to a different subject altogether. Did the Rebbe ever publicly speak out against Pesach food price gouging? During the year, a potato costs 50 cents. But on Pesach, they have the chutzpah to charge $3 for the exact same potato. Okay. I don't remember the Rebbe speaking about Pesach, but I do know Tezvov Tammuz, Tovshim Memhei, 1985, before the Rebbe actually began speaking about the Svarim that were stolen then, which led to the court case and Hey Tevis and so on, the Rebbe did speak a very impassioned plea that in this community, especially the Rebbe's community, Jewish landlords should not gouge and should not overprice rent uh, uh, per, uh, and prohibiting the ability for people to buy homes in this neighborhood. Spoke about it relatively at length, that we have to make it easier for people and not try to enrich ourselves on the back of others. So using that logic, you can apply that to any given situation. I don't know the other side of the story, whether the potato, a Pesach potato, why should cost more. If it's purely for profit, profit reasons, I would not think it's appropriate. If you can explain that for whatever reason takes more care, like a reason that uh, because it has to be kosher la Pesach, and I don't know if that at all is true or not, then maybe you can justify some of it. But the mere idea that people will pay more because it's Pesach and they have no choice is not considered, in my opinion, probably halachically not, not even allowed, but definitely not midas chassidus and sadin, where we should be helping each other. Now, obviously, it's a legitimate thing to mark up a product, but in a fair way. We know that we don't mark up, even in regular times, something that unfair uh, market practices. There's halachas about it, there's psukim and teira about it. So it's a sad part of life, where money people, because of money, will do things that will compromise values, and these can be very good people and fine people but they see an opportunity. I'm not looking here to criticize anybody, but, I have, but since the question was asked, it's important to put it on the table. And on the contrary, let the vendors explain themselves in a way that we can understand. Let them be transparent and, um, and full disclosure of why they do these practices. Okay. I don't know more, what more to say. I will refer you to episode 157. And, um, and I wish some vendors are watching this, people who are selling food or other items and products, and like to hear what they would say. You know, we have to always be able to listen to each other. This is not just to be a, a blanket criticism, but it's a very challenging issue, and especially many people are struggling, and they shouldn't have to struggle further to pay these higher exorbitant prices when it comes to Pesach. Okay. Now, let's see time-wise. So much to address. Okay, let me do a few follow-ups. I'll do the chassidus and we'll do the essays. So some follow-ups, I go back two episodes, back to episode 346, Shattering the Tablets. If our relationship with God is that we are considered God's bride and the smashing of the luchas of the tablets by Moshe was like a divorce, then how can Kahanan be married to God if he's a divorcee? <laughs> and especially since all the Jews are mamleches Cain and v'gei Kaddish. Well, a few mistakes here. Number one, is the smashing of the luchas was not a divorce. On the contrary, 
Rashi says, and I cited it back in episode 346, it was the ksuba that he tore, the marriage contract, in order to say that the Jews had not yet committed in full commitment to the law of not building a false god. It was to save the Jews. So what you can say is, Matan Teda was the Edison, was the Chasana, the Kedushin, the Edison. The Luchis would have been the consummation of it in the sense of them receiving the Ksuba, the marriage contract. They built the calf, so Moshe wisely anticipated to, protect, to defend the Jews that they hadn't technically received it yet, which was, of course, a big mysterious nefesh on his part. The goal was to elicit forgiveness because God would not forgive them. God would have wanted to divorce, wanted to divorce them now. He says, no, I don't want to deal with them anymore. So Moshe, using this that they haven't yet committed, now used it to pray and beseech God to forgive, and ultimately they were forgiven. 120 days later, Yom Kippur, and he came down with the second luchas, which is the marriage contract. The ksuba, the ksuba, the second ksuba, if you wish, the one that was torn is the broken tablets, the one that the second ksuba, and now it was consummated. So there's no divorce, God forbid, at all. Um, okay. Another question someone asked about the sin of the golden calf and that topic. Obliterating the, obliterating the Jewish people? How do we understand Hashem's threat of obliterating the Jewish people, God forbid? If he had already promised Avram that, he was be forever, that we will be forever. Also, according to Chassidus, it's hard to wrap one's brain around this. Don't we learn that the Jews are part of Hashem's essence? What is Hashem telling us by suggesting our obliteration? Very good question. But you have to again see the big picture. And we talk about the Akedah, for example. Hashem told Avram to offer, bind and offer Yitzchok. Everyone wonders, well, how is that possible? But the end of the story is Yitzchok is not offered. A ram is offered in his place. So what's the kavana of even saying that? Because the goal was to teach Avram how to bind himself and bind his son to connect to God. It wasn't about obliteration or killing. Same thing here. The truth is, the Jews did something which is Yarek Val They built a golden calf, an idol. According to Teda, that's from the three things that you're not allowed to do. You're supposed to die before you, you, you bow to Avedizara, to idolatry. Worship idolatry. And yet, Moshe, what happened? He used the opportunity to dig deeper and to connect to God in a deeper way and show that you really love them because your essence is connected. But on a Giluyim level, let's use the language of sins, they have severed their connection. Why are these three sins? And here we're talking about idolatry so fundamental. Because it's not just a small, uh, small is not the right word. It's not just severing one pipeline where it be Shabbos or something, which is also terrible. Aved Zara is fundamentally betraying God in its entirety. So you don't have an existence anymore. As I said before, that the, the Rebbe brings it off. A chayiv misa means that you're, you're, your existence isn't justified anymore. It's not a punishment as in we're punishing you. You have punished yourself. You have like put your hand in fire, you get burned. Well, if you jump your whole body in fire, the whole body will get burned, God forbid. Avedizot is the equivalent of that. So God was saying, basically saying that. You did something which completely severed. But Moshe knew that the severing is on deepest levels but if you do what you have to do, you can, he can find that essential connection. Did God intend that to be? You can even say so, maybe. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu is the one that had to do it. 
because he had to dig, dig deeper and show that the people, I will make sure they're accountable and I represent them, but you need to also d- discover the deeper love. And maybe that is ultimately, even though we can't put things in human terms, that God responded to because he saw the depth of Moshe's love. So it elicited Hashem's love. I forgive them as you've spoken. And, the, and then the connection of the essential connection that transcended the, 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 the revealed one ultimately emerged in this deepest form of bond. Now this does not mean we are justified to do whatever we want and then say, you know what, we're going to pray. Echtev Ashev doesn't work. Even though the Alter Rebbe says, Imdochak, that if he really forces his way and pushes, breaks down the door, you could do tshuva even when you said, I'll sin in order to do tshuva. You can't use the healing to in order to create the, 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 the disease. It's only after the fact that you can dig deeper. So this is not a way, this is not a method, obviously. But after the fact, that's what occurred. There was a deeper connection. Okay. There's more comments and more to discuss. What can I say? But I will now um, go to the Chassidus question. And we'll deal with the other things later. Will there be prayers after the temple is rebuilt? Meaning the third temple, Mashiach comes. If in our times the act of praying has replaced offerings, karbonus, in the future messianic era will we only bring karbonus and not be required to pray? Personally, I hope we are allowed and encouraged to do both because why not do everything possible to thank Hashem for creating a beautiful world? Every day is a gift. Okay. Very good question. The answer briefly is the following. First of all, we talk about Mashiach's times in two tkufas, two periods. Alter Rebbe speaks about it in Simen Chavov in sections 26 in the Gerasakedich, in the fourth section of Tanya, fourth, fourth part of Tanya. So, Karbonis will be returned, as we know. Rambam Paskins, the mitzvahs will come back, the Besamidish will be Karbonis. One of the reasons, Moshev Arni Mohem, because they'll show us how to bring these offerings. It's very possible. I've not seen it directly. I do have a vague recollection that the Rebbe once spoke about it, that there'll also be prayers together with that. First, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, all the karbonas come with certain intentions and perhaps words as well. So when we'll be Mishalma, Parim, Sfaseinu, when we'll have the Parim, we'll also have the Sfaseinu, especially in the fact that thousands of years Jews did use prayers. So that is a likelihood. I don't know the extent because I have not seen it spoken about. But if anybody has sources for that, please share them, and I'll share them with the, the public. But there's a second kuf. The second period, it says in the Medish explicitly, Medish Rabbah Tzav 9-7, it talks about that all the karbonas will be eliminated, and also all the prayers, except karbon teido, except the gratitude, the thanksgiving offering. Because a karbon is about refining the world. It's many of the karbonas are also about sin. Karbon chatos, karbon osham. So the Yafei Teir on the Medrash explains at length why there won't be any karbonas. Teida is about thanking God for blessings, for miracles. It's not about any negative. So that will remain. The Tzemach Tzedek discusses it as well in Eira Teir Nach, volume 2, page 863 and 864. 
And for more on this, go to Sefer Lekutim, which is a encyclopedia, a compendium of the Tzemech Tzedek's Chassidus and all Chassidus, in the Erech, in the entry on La'osid Lovey, the letter Lamed. Chof Lamed, there's a volume, La'osid Lovey. There's a whole section that brings discusses about the Korbonus La'osid Lovey. Same thing with prayer, as the Yefetair explains, because prayer, whether it's due to distress or due to needs, different opinions that Ramban, that Rambam on this matter, so distress and needs, both of them, distress for sure won't exist, and needs will have all our needs. Madana Mitzim Kafir, all our needs will be there. But perhaps there'll be a prayer that'll be connecting, like, like Tarbin Teda, like the Alter Rebbe says at the end of Simen Chavav in Argeris HaKedish, that we'll learn Teda not to know what's right and wrong, but to make higher Yechudim. So you could say the same thing with filler, with prayer, perhaps, that the prayer that will be will be to connect to God. That will be able, that, the, a connection, deeper connections. So that deals with that. Okay. Um, so now we always conclude with the annual. This is the sixth annual My Life Chassidus Applied Essay and Creative Contest. We are now the 18th place winners, which remain excellent, excellent essays. I just read them again today, and I see that, again, amazed by its relevance and its, uh, how people personally apply. So we go four tracks. The English essay, Stop the Train. Chani Segelman, age 19, a shlucha in Mechon Alta Seminary, and she originates from Los Angeles, California. What train is she referring to? The train of thoughts, the constant thoughts that we have, obsessions, that we don't stop thinking about things, and can you do something about it? So it's citing Tanya. She creates a whole model in this essay of steps that you can do to control and train your thought. First of all, in restraint. Secondly, replacing it with good thoughts, bringing light into your life. Excellent essay, very practical for something we all struggle with. So check that out. At chassidusapply.com you can see this essay. Read the full essay. The next is the essay in Hebrew for men. Cognitive dissonance, dissonance cognitivi. Avram Friedman, a student from Beitar Elit, Israel. So here he discusses cognitive dissonance, which of course is a concept of when a person is trying to adjust between their values and their behavior, and they're trying to live with it. So he brings an entire process based on Chassidus, Tanya, and other places that talk about how one deals with it. Because when you're in that state, you're in denial, essentially. And he says, use the shtuz de gedusha. By using shtuz de gusha, meaning go beyond. Because if you go by rational approach, your, your, the, the dissonance, the cognitive dissonance will take control. So you have to go with a super rational approach is his solution and suggestion to deal with cognitive dissonance. Another very good essay. The Hebrew essays can be seen at diraloy.org, D-I-R-A-L-O.org. The he, essay in Hebrew by women, imrak ben a very thin line. Is it only between apathy and, and, and apostate and heresy? And goes on to discuss, it was a very powerful essay, I found it to be a very powerful essay, about the, about the different ways that a person can resolve the challenges in our lives. We all have our challenges. And how to deal with them. Now the challenges, of course, debilitate us. So it's about rebuilding confidence, Focusing on the positive, not blaming others. In other words, not looking at 
at the circumstances, but looking at how we can deal with things better. A whole step process of how to deal with different challenges. And the essay again is diraloy.org, D-I-R-A-L-O.org. And finally, the creative submission, which can be seen at chsidasupply.com. Creation as an act of love. The, form, the creative format is mixed media with text and visual by Ella Hadar, age 16, student, Torah Academy, Johannesburg, South Africa. And talking about God not needing us, but actually the creation being an act of God's love. She captures that in this mixed media presentation. So I'll let it speak for itself because it's hard to convey a piece of art. And again, chassidusupply.com. Well, my friends, everyone should have a very redeeming and lebedic and joyous and geuladike chedesh nissen. We should have the geula even before Pesach comes. It should be healthy. All those that need a refor shleim should have a complete refor shleim even before, before the Pesach. Next week we'll have a special Pesach edition. This has been My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 348. We're here every Sunday, six to, I'm sorry, eight. Said so we're here every Sunday, eight to nine p.m. I uh, look forward to continuing. Everyone have a very good chedesh and afrelech and yontif. Be well. This program is brought to you by My Life Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com/donate.